Hello and welcome to the Primate Podcast, brought to you by Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit video streaming service. It's all about saving animals and restoring the planet. My name's Ian Redmond, Ecoflix's Head of Conservation, and this podcast, as the name suggests, is all about primates. I've been fascinated by apes and monkeys all my life, and I'm always keen to learn more. That's why I want to share this interest through conversations with primatologists, scientists, researchers, and leading conservationists, many of whom have spent weeks or months or even decades in the field learning about our closest animal relatives. What are primates and why are they so important to biodiversity and our understanding of ourselves? In this episode, I sit down with Adams Kasinga. Adams is the founder and CEO of Conserve Congo, a non-governmental organization that is taking on organized crime across the DRC, a country two-thirds the size of Western Europe. Pretty extraordinary task, but Adams is a pretty extraordinary guy. His story is, well, just amazing. You couldn't make it up. And it takes so long that we're going to do it in two halves. So welcome to the first part of Primate Podcast with Adams Kasinga. Today, I'm delighted to be welcoming uh, my friend Adams Kasinga, who is the founder and CEO of Conserve Congo, uh, a Congolese non-governmental organization that is working to protect wildlife in the Congo. Um, so, Adams, uh, welcome to Ecoflix. Um, Thank you very much, yeah. We, we tried before when you were in Kinshasa and, and the internet wasn't up to it, but you're in the UK. Uh, tell me what, what you're hoping to achieve coming to, the, to England. All right. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, the reason why we're here is uh, part of our networking mission. Uh, we are meeting different stakeholders trying to form relationships and maintain partnerships. And that's the main reason why we're here. So it's quite unusual to have you on on, on English soil. Um, normally you're based in Kinshasa, but uh, let, let's go back a little bit. Um, I understand you, you spent your boyhood in Bukavu, which is a lovely city on the shores of Lake Kivu in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Tell, tell me about your boyhood. Great. Yeah, well, uh, growing up in, in Bukavu, it was a beautiful place. I spent my childhood there until roughly my mid-teens. I attended a, a local Catholic school called Alfajiri, one of the best, if not the, the best. Uh, at the time, 90% of all my teachers were European, mainly French and Belgian. And uh, I got really one of the best education that I could in this institution. But uh, there was something weird. And uh, we were restricted, or should I say even prohibited, from speaking our mother tongues. So on school premises, we were only allowed to speak in French. And each time one spoke in any other language which wasn't French, you got punished. But the punishment was a little bit uh, weird because don't make you wear a skull, which I would later discover that it was an ape's skull if you were a boy. And if you were a girl, they'll shave off your head. Um, Good grief. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be classed as child abuse today. 
it is it is child abuse and i'm not sure if that still happens to date but if it still does i would be highly disappointed but everybody of my age or older than me knows that and uh, this kind of uh, discouraged it was like detaching the pupils from nature because when you see that you tend to resent wildlife but for me instead it worked differently i was inquisitive i became very curious and i wanted to know what that skull was when it was still alive and this is where i will make all means and irrespective of my parents being against me going to on, a, on an excursion i'll go to luiro at age 12 and that is going to be the first place and my first time to see a chimpanzee but this was in a cage uh i didn't see it in its natural habitat and uh that triggered more curiosity on my part because i wanted to find out some more as to what these magnificent animals are and how they behave unfortunately i didn't get anybody who would mentor me or who would tell me more about uh wildlife and as a result we could only hear the misconceptions that our parents and uh the adults around us also had and i remember the only time that we could see wildlife it was in the market but this time around they were already dead chopped up into pieces ready to be served as dinner and that is uh the image that most people of my age whether educated or not have of wildlife there was also another incident which occurred much more often and it was the tourists there was a huge truck that would come to our city maybe 3 4 times a week and it would be full of tourists most of them were not african and i used to inquire from the adults around myself as to who these people were and i would get the same answer over and over again these were the rich the most educated and the powerful coming from abroad and they go somewhere in the mountains to see some kind of a monkey and i put it quote and quote some kind of a monkey not many people at the time knew even know knew what a gorilla was and i remember the first time i heard or most people heard about gorilla is during i think that was in 1990 early 90s i cannot recall the year exactly when our currency was going through a crisis and there was a note which was 50,000 zairians at the time and it had the pictures of gorillas maheshe i think one of uh, the most uh, I, have, i have one of those banknotes in in a book somewhere yeah. <laughs> yes and <laughs> and i can still tell you you see the caricature that they did to that animal so these magnificent animals they were put on a note which has no value and i remember at that time if they called you a maheshe it means you were a useless human being just like the note was oh dear that, that is sad because by, by contrast look i've got a a Rwandan banknote here and uh 5000 yeah. Rwandan sure. francs is 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 a it's not a huge amount of money but it's it's significant but it's quite yes yeah um 
and they have a, a golden monkey on the uh, oh wow that's that's so beautiful <laughs> isn't it so they're trying to give in it uh some value as yes. of now and that's because yes. people are becoming more and more aware of uh, our natural heritage and how we should uh, give it some extra or added value but in those days so those were the norms and i can tell you to date there are so many people of my age or older than me who don't think Mahesha is a being, is a real being. And those people believe it was just a drawing, a caricature, which was drawn by an artist just to depict something uh, despicable or something that was uh, highly negative. I, I met Mahesha on several occasions and uh, he was very, very real. <laughs> yeah, he was but, very real. So... so if we're talking about the the mid nineties, that was a very difficult time for for what was formerly Zaire, just about to become the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, what was your experience at those times? Yeah, in those times, I grew up under a very fierce dictatorship uh, under President Mobutu Sese Seko, and uh, <clears throat> violence, intimidation were on top of the agenda, and uh, I still remember vividly that the army was like the second best after, <clears throat> excuse me, after the political family. So it's either you were affiliated to a political party, which was just a single political party at the, at the time. In fact, we used to call it Parti Etat, which means party state. So that party represented a state. Or you were in the military. So if you went in these two aspects of life or career paths, you were considered to be a loser. And therefore, Mobutu had a system of recruiting uh, his best soldiers at a very young age. And he was like a symbol of uh, power, like a national symbol of strength and revolution that we almost worshipped him. And this way, in every school, there was a branch, the youth branch. And this, this youth, youth branch had a program, and this program was called Les Pionniers du Zaire. And we even had a hymn, Nous les Pionniers du Zaire. The same way we had the national anthem, the Pioniers, which is equivalent to Pioneers. Uh, I would even liken it to the program of the cadet, maybe in the American army. Uh, it was a very competitive uh, program, <clears throat> which challenged you both physically, mentally, and intellectually. And they selected a cohort, sometimes not exceeding 50. And this cohort, from day one of high school, they will grow and they're being mentored by different uh, personalities, be it in the political arena, or in the military, so that they can become model citizens. And by the end of the high school, they will either join the political branch or they will join the army branch. And I was lucky to be part of the selected young people who were selected in my cohort at the time. But unfortunately, I would never last to go to the academy as my parents, my family, and friends had uh, wished for me because the war broke out in 1996. And this war will eventually end the era of dictatorship of Mobutu Sese Seko after 32 years in power. Now, 
when this happened, it shattered all my dreams. And uh, because there were so many movements of armed groups and they were trying to recruit young men and women, uh, people who already had that kind of idea on how to take instructions, how to take orders. Uh, they were young, they were naive. Those were the people that were being sought after. And we fell in that category. And unfortunately, after three or four attempts of trying to recruit me in such militia, my family decided to send me away. And that's how at a very young age, I'll find myself as a young asylum seeker in South Africa. And here, my father had sent me here trying to salvage my life. But I ended up being jumping from, uh, from the pot, a boiling pot, into the fire itself. Very soon, I found myself on the street. And I didn't have any, any home where to stay. I struggled to feed myself. And you know, as a, every young man, you will try to dabble in uh, small crime here and there. And uh, by so doing, I also tried to, to survive teaching myself how to speak English. And that's the reason why I'm communicating with you in English right now. But uh, that was part of uh, my worst part of, uh, of uh, me being a human being. Because as a refugee, I think the worst, the worst thing about being a refugee is you're just a number, just like a prisoner. And sometimes when you've, give, you've been given a bag of rice and soup, people think that they have done already their part. They do not think of you as a human being who, have, who has got needs beyond what you put inside your mouth. And therefore, that kind of treatment can make you redundant, maybe a little bit rebellious and angry at the same time. So I really grew up with a lot of anger and if you ask me why, I would know probably the experiences that I went through. And I really resented human beings. I was a recluse. I was really angry. But uh, fortunately, after my, my life on the street, I would find my way of uh, getting to the library and starting to read books in English. And I would empower myself on how to write English, being uh, self-taught. I would change my uh, environment and I'll go to another little city. Uh, it's currently called Nelspret. This is about 40 kilometers away from the Kruger National Park. And um, here I started writing like an activist and I think my spirit of activism was activated at this moment. Instead of just being angry at people who did not do uh, any wrong to me, I started venting that anger through writing and I was writing to the local newspaper. I wrote for about a year or more until someday I received a reply. And this reply was to invite me over to the newsroom. And I went there, I met up with uh, this very vibrant uh, lady. And she asked me, are you the person who writes these letters? I said, yes. But she said, it doesn't look like you because I was really young and innocent. Under other skies, I was supposed to be innocent and in, in school maybe. But what I wrote about was something that came from the bottom of 
my darkest uh, part. And she wanted to find out why I was writing about such things. But this time she didn't want me to tell her. She wanted me to put it into words. And she gave me a laptop and that was the first time I've ever touched a laptop in my life. And uh, with my two indexes, I started typing. It took me longer than necessary, but eventually I got the story together. And I can remember vividly her reading it. And after finishing, she looked at me and she said, wow, I am impressed because English was my third language, but she was impressed with the way I put words together. And she told me, when do you start? I can still remember that sentence uh, resonating in my mind as if it was yesterday. And I can tell you, Yen, that sentence was what saved me from the worst. If she did not tell me that word, definitely today I'd be either in prison or I'd be dead. And that goes to show you how human beings can play a godly role to other human beings. And when you look at the problems we have today in our society, even in conservation, it's because people no longer play that role. Instead, they play the devilish uh, kind of role in other people's lives. So this lady gave me a chance and she said I could uh, volunteer or be an intern at this newspaper. And they were ready to pay for my school fees. So I really scored two goals at the same time. And this way I started working there and very quickly I saw myself growing up and uh, growing at the same time with the newspapers. And before you knew it, I had a whole publication under my sleeve as a, an editor. And in the meantime, I was doing investigative journalism, mainly focusing on environmental crimes because this little town wasn't just agricultural, it was also a mining town. And therefore, there were so many crimes or infractions being committed uh, regarding the environment. Mainly, we had a, a crisis of poaching in the park. We also had uh, lots of illegal mining. Uh, a lot of crime happened within that area because Sometimes within various gangs of illegal miners, there will be a clash and they would kill each other. I remember at one point I went to cover a story about 18 miners who went illegally into an old gold mine shaft and 17 of them died. And the guy who survived was reluctant to tell even the authorities that his friends were still stuck down there. And it's only after a month that he said that. And I was part of uh, the media crew that went down there to investigate as to what really happened. With uh, sparing you the details on that, those are some of the stories which are covered. Unfortunately, at around 2005, 2006, something terrible happened. I was covering a story uh, on a young boy who was killed in a ritualistic way in what they used to call um, um, an initiation school. So basically an initiation school is uh, a rite of passage. In certain tribes in Africa, when a boy reaches a certain age, they'll go through a certain kind of uh, a school 
it takes a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And it's a group of boys where they usually do circumcision and they teach them how to become men. I don't know if a man can be taught how to be a man. I thought, I always thought a man was born a man, but that's a cultural aspect to certain African tribes. But there is a dark side to this because sometimes people who do not understand culture very well, sometimes they carry culture, culture into making these boys believe that they have to make a sacrifice, a human sacrifice for them to be stronger. And usually they would pick on the weak ones or the younger ones. And uh, therefore this boy was murdered and buried by his colleagues under the auspices of the leaders of the school. And they kept it a secret. So the grandmother came to the newsroom and the one, she wanted to know what happened to her grandson. And that's how myself and my photographer would go into the field trying to investigate the story. We had already done a very good job on the story, but it just remained to get the comments of the owner of uh, this initiation school. And it's when I went to confront the man that the man pulled out a gun on me and he shot me. So in the process, I got shot three times. He fired five times, but I got hit three times, two in my body and one in my leg. And I was just lucky because of two reasons. The doctor would say that my blood clots easily. And that's what saved me, said, saved me from bleeding to death. But also the gun that he had was a 22 caliber revolver. So it happens to be one of the lower caliber. For you to cause a lot of damage to a human being, you need to be at very close proximity or close range. But I guess there was about five or six meters between me and, uh, and the shooter. And that's the reason why I can still speak to you today. And that uh, marked the end of my career as an active reporter because I was just so scared. And family and friends advised me to come down a little bit and uh, seek a different career path. So was that the point you went to the United States? Yes. So I went now, I uh, took up a short course. And after taking up a short course, it allowed me to venture into mining. And I got a job in Ghana. And as I got a job in Ghana, I started making now money. You can imagine as a junior in the mining sector, I made four times the salary which I made as a senior reporter. And at this stage, I could visit the whole world. I could go anywhere I wanted, and I chose to go and settle in the United States. And uh, this way, I benefited from uh, the State Department, for a, benefited a scholarship. Uh, and I started staying there. So I was back and forth at work in Africa and back to the U.S., and uh, mining really opened up a broader horizon uh, to my life. And the biggest thing that my, the mining sector brought to me was to embrace diversity. The first time I saw so many people coming from all over the world was in the mining sector. And I managed to benefit that experience, which makes me the global citizen that I am today. I also made a little bit of money because there is so much money in the mining sector. And I quickly uh, grew uh, 
climbed the ladder, the corporate ladder. Uh, I started off in Ghana. Very soon, I moved to Burkina Faso. I, I worked in Mali. And eventually, I was sent to Tanzania. And by the time I reached Tanzania, I was already a one. I was no longer wearing coveralls and uh, pushing wheelbarrows. I was already in a suit and a tie. And um, this job allowed me uh, to taste the best of life. As a young African, we always dream of being financially stable, uh, taking our younger ones into school, building our mothers, uh, a little house. And that's what I did, just like any young man. And eventually, in 2010, a very big opportunity came because the firm that I was working with got a contract to go to the DRC. And it happened that I was the right man for the job. When they asked me, I did not think twice. I said, yes, I'm going to take up the employment. And that's going to be the first time I'd return to the DRC as an adult. And I remember vividly sitting at Entebbe International Airport in a private jet. You can imagine coming from the gutter and suddenly I'm now flying in a private jet, just myself with a couple of colleagues and a pilot. And uh, we flew over uh, the forests, the Congo Basin forests. Honestly, with I had never seen anything as pristine, as beautiful, as what I saw. The canopy, the way it was just so green, it looked like a green carpet. And it's being crisscrossed by these big rivers and little rivulets. It looked so surreal. And I was just taking pictures and I, I, I was very well traveled. And this goes to show you that I had been everywhere else, but I had never been to myself. And what I could say, I didn't know we even had this beautiful of a country because at the time when I was growing up, it was much more expensive to fly from one city to the other than flying internationally from one country to the other. And I think even today, it is more or less the same because at the time, uh, flying from my hometown into Kinshasa, the capital city, it costs about $800. At the same time, flying from Kinshasa, a return ticket to England was about $700. Crazy. So you can see that we didn't know each other as, uh, as Congolese. We didn't even know our country. And the situation has not changed a bit today. Well, wasn't Mobutu uh, reported to have said he didn't want to build roads because his, en his enemies could get, get to him if, if, there were, if there was a road network around the country? It is true. It is true. Unfortunately, as powerful as he thought he was, uh, there were there were so many uh, stupid statements which he made, and today we still laugh it off. But, even so though the, the, the sight of this pristine nature, um, and then you're you're going to a mine. How how did that uh, affect you? It affected me a lot because now I found myself on site with my body and my mind, but my heart remained in that forest. And I think to date, my heart is still in that forest. And that's the reason why I put my mouth where my heart is. And I said, I'm going to be a mouthpiece to speak up, not only for that forest, but for all the beings that live in it. 
And that's what I've been doing for the past 11 years. It wasn't an easy journey venturing into uh, a sector that I knew very little about. I knew almost nothing about it. And remember, I had a five-year contract to work on this mine, but I ended up only doing two years. And the day I left, most of my colleagues thought it was an April Fool uh, story. They didn't believe that for a young African making the kind of money that I was making, being as influential as I was, I was just going to give up and move. But surprisingly, I did. But it's not a decision that just fell from the skies. As soon as I arrived on site, I started thinking about exiting. It's just that I didn't tell, uh, I didn't tell nobody. But also, I was thinking, how do I exit? So I, it took two years for me to gather enough courage to say I quit. And immediately I quit. The first thing I did was to go home with my family, my brothers, my sisters, my parents. I told them that I quit. All of them thought I was crazy. And to date, there are some family members who do not talk to me because of that decision I made. Because they all asked me, so what you going to do now? And I said, I want to be in conservation. I want to preserve the forest and all the beings that live in it. Everybody thought that I wasn't the right person to do that and that I had left my real calling, which was to take care of the family because I was the sole breadwinner at the time. Wow, what an amazing life Adam Skasinga has led. Far too much for a single podcast. This is the end of part one. Come back for part two. Thanks for listening to the Primate Podcast. Please do share with friends and animal lovers everywhere. And remember to check out ecoflix.com where 100% of your subscription goes to an animal welfare NGO working to save animals and the planet.